0: Now, if you didn't catch it, Pastor John mentioned I'd be preaching today, so this is not the announcements part. As an elder, one of my duties is to give him a break every now and then from preparing a sermon, and Elder Brian uh, did so about three weeks ago, and uh, the difference is we get about six weeks to prepare our sermon. He gets about six days. So this morning, Pastor John, you get a chance to just sit back and relax, take a little nap. And uh, for everybody else, we'll try to get everybody tuned in here. I remember about three years ago to the day, three years ago to the day, I stood right over here with Pastor Dennis, and you may have been here at the time, and I talked about this impending storm coming called COVID. How our lives have changed since COVID. And one of the ways that our lives changed is we kept hearing from the media and from politicians and from public health officials about this word called truth everybody had to talk about the truth and we heard about terms like misinformation and distortions of truth and uh, hiding the truth and um, denying the truth so what is truth that's going to be what i'm going to be talking about today and i've got a few slides to show you here so as we ask the question what is truth in john 17 I'm sorry, John 18, 37, 38. Pilate asked this question because he asked the question of Jesus. So you're a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Then Pilate kind of retorts, Now, what is truth? What I find is interesting, the Bible never records how Jesus responded to that because I don't think he had a chance to respond because I think Pilate walked away. He didn't really want to hear the answer. But spoiler alert, he found out what the answer was a few years later, and I'll get back to that in a moment. But Pilate got his answer. It's just that he didn't get the answer at that time. So what is truth? It differs from an opinion. Often the words are used interchangeably and appropriately. You don't have your truth, and my truth, and his truth. Truth is truth, it's not an opinion. Truth is not validated by personal passion. Yelling louder and interrupting somebody else does not in, does not validate your point of view, and it doesn't make it more true. And the perception of truth may be based upon a lot of different factors. It may be, it may be based upon the available information you already have, the truth can be like a in gathering data, like a crossword puzzle. And um, you only get so many pieces in a crossword puzzle sometimes you try to figure out what's all going to be. That's the way the perception of truth can be. The available information might be limited. Past life experiences might be a factor. Uh, social consensus, democracy does not make something true just because everybody believes it. Motivations, brain networking can affect how you perceive reality around you. Uh, I did promise Chris I would not show any brain slides this morning, so I'm not going to show any brain slides, but very importantly, personal bias can have a big impact on how you perceive the reality around you. You might not recognize this individual. There he is from the 1970s. He's a United States Congre- Congressman by the name of representative Earl Landgreave. Earl Landreeb had a classic quote that is still used to this day. He didn't mean to become famous and he didn't mean to make this his legacy, but he was given a lot of information that was contradictory contradictory to his particular point of view on something and he was the last remaining United States Senator who did or United States Congressman who didn't believe this particular point despite all this evidence coming in. So despite all the evidence coming in, Representative Landgreeb said, don't confuse me with the facts, I've got a closed mind. (laughs) This quote is often used in business seminars saying, many people have already made up their mind no matter what information you give them, and they're called cynics. So there's ways that we examine information, and one of those ways is with cynicism. You've made up your mind. You can get all the information you're going to get, but you've made up your mind. Secondly, skepticism is where, well, you're open to the data coming in, but you still have a lot of doubts, and you have a lot of questions. Doubting Thomas, for instance, he was a skeptic. He gets a bad rap sometimes, but uh, he just had a lot of questions, and he was a skeptic. Discernment is where you do believe a particular point of view, but you want more information. You want to learn more and more and more about it. And finally, there's blind faith, where you basically believe anything anybody tells you. But we have to remember that truth is a definitive reality. Truth is truth. It's fixed. And it has consequences if it's inaccurate. And today I'm going to give you some ideas on examples on how truth can give you unintended consequences if it is not validated. And I'll give you examples in engineering medicine and from a theological basis. From an engineering standpoint... You may remember the day January 28th, 1986. I certainly do. I know exactly what I was doing that day. January 28th, 1986 was when the space shuttle Challenger blew up 73 seconds after, after liftoff. And it was tragic. Never, never had any of the United States uh, astronauts died in space. American astronauts had mishaps in space, like Apollo 13. But hey, American astronauts always came back alive. And they came back. They made movies out of it. Tom Hanks was the star in Apollo 13. I mean, that's, that's what NASA was all about. Astronauts didn't die when they went up in, in flight. And this was particularly notable because of these seven astronauts, one of them was the first civilian in space. Her name was Krista McAuliffe. And Krista McAuliffe was one of over 11,000 applicants applicants as a teacher to go in space. And the publicity around that was she was going to go into space and teach students from her spacecraft. And they were going to be in the classrooms. And they all had all these video feeds. They were all excited. Well, when they had the mishap in space, the explosion occurred, there was a lot of controversy around it. There were congressional hearings. And there was a lot of cover up and a lot of finger pointing and bottom line is Alan McDonald was a rocket engineer who basically blew the whistle on, okay, here's what really happened. And he brought out the truth with it all and he wrote that book that I just showed you. Alan McDonald was one of the chief engineers on the rocket that lifted the space shuttle. And this rocket was shipped in segments. Okay, there were two rockets on each side. There's a big rocket in the middle. The space shuttle was a bit taller than the Allen County Courthouse. And the two rockets on the side were held together. And in one of the pieces, it was held together by two rubber O-rings. You may remember back in the congressional hearings in the late 1980s, they always talked about the O-rings. The O-rings looked like, well, you know, old rubber rings that looked like an O. And the O-rings basically were for the purpose of expanding upon takeoff to lock in the hot gases that could be expelled from the rocket itself. So with the Space Challenger disaster, what happened in the days before liftoff, this is in Florida, keep in mind, the lead engineers recommend the flight be postponed because cold weather at the site might have suggested those rubber O-rings might not have expanded enough and they might not have held, and they were warning about that. The problem was, this is Florida again, 31 degrees that morning. Florida didn't get that cold, does it? It did that morning. Previously, the coldest liftoff they ever had successfully was 53 degrees. So the NASA engineer says, you better not lift, lift off with this. And the administrators with NASA said, are you sure? Have you tested it at 31 degrees? And the NASA engineer said, no, we haven't tested it. That's the problem. They said, well, how, if you've not tested it, how you know it's not going to hold? Now, would you want to have been, have been an astronaut on that flight with that knowledge in mind? Because retrospectively, it was found that the chances of a successful flight was only about 7 out of 8 with a 31-degree temperature. One out of 8 chance that they were not going to be able to uh, be successful with that flight. I wouldn't have wanted to take those odds had I known that as an astronaut. So the fear was that with the anticipated low temperature, the O-rings wouldn't properly seal around that rocket, allowing the blow-by of dangerously hot gases. And obviously, that is what ultimately occurred. Here's what the uh, launch pad looked like that morning. It lifted off just before noon that day. Can you imagine going to the Fort Wayne International Airport, getting ready for, for your flight, and seeing icicles coming off the wings of your plane? Now. Nowadays, we have what's called de-icing, and it makes us annoyed when our plane is getting de-iced because we know it's gonna make us late for our connection. But it's important to be de-iced. They didn't do a de-icing back then, and because those O-rings were frozen, basically, they didn't expand. Within five seconds of liftoff, you could already see the hot gases being expelled. 60 seconds into the flight, you could see the hot gases coming out, then then it exploded the NASA administrators for the first time ever overturned the recommendation of the NASA engineers. Why did that happen? Well, there are a lot of thoughts. Why was there a launch? Well, the overall risk for a space shuttle failure was one out of a hundred thousand. That's pretty good odds. That's pretty good odds for driving down Coliseum some days. Uh, But one out of a hundred thousand, that's the overall odds. Prior shuttles had successfully launched with lower than tested, temperatures, the tested temperatures were in the 70s. So prior shuttles had launched when it was 53. What's the problem with 31 degrees? That was the thinking. There was an urgency in the schedule. They were trying to launch two shuttles every month, and they were behind, because this space shuttle has got a teacher on board. Come on, let's go. There was an urgency to the schedule moving. The first teacher on board was, um, Um, A a big political event, a lot of people were talking about it. The children were in the classrooms watching this whole uh, type of endeavor occur. There was a lot of media pressure because of the delays. Competitions from other programs was a problem because other programs were claiming they could make better rockets. And bottom line is NASA didn't fail. We were NASA, we're not going to fail. We're going to launch this anyway because we've never lost anybody in space. Bad things don't happen with NASA. Came down to pride. So when you think about that, there's a biblical perspective from this. Hopefully this isn't your life verse, but in Proverbs 6, 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And Isaiah 25, said something that's uh, interesting about pride. He said, they will stretch their hands in it, referring to pride, as swin- swimmers stretch out their hands to swim and giving you this perception of um, treading water. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. When you think about cleverness of their hands, that's kind of where NASA was. So that's the engineering truth I had as an example. Let's talk about the medicine truth. And no, I'm not going to talk about COVID, even though I just did. That's not the, not the example I'm going to give you. Let's go back to Vienna in, 19, or in 1846, about 170 years ago. Vienna General Hospital, that was the place to be if you were sick. That was the top-notch hospital in the entire world. On their OB unit, one out of six women were dying of childbed fever. So imagine going into the hospital, delivering a baby, and having a five out of, chance, five out of six chance of surviving. Not really good odds, but that was their top-notch hospital in the world. On their OB unit, where all the physicians were, the medical residents were, the medical students, that was their top unit on the world. Uh, The scenario was you'd go in the hospital, you'd deliver your baby, then you'd die. Childbed fever, you had pus in your abdomen, sometimes in your eye sockets. It was a nasty kind of illness. But what was interesting, the adjacent unit to this medical unit, the adjacent unit, it it was very, very crowded because it was a free charity unit. So if you couldn't afford to pay for the high-priced doctors, you go to the free charity unit, and it was staffed by midwives, for the indigent, basically, and their death rate was five times lower. Five times lower on the indigent charity unit, where there were no doctors, just midwives. Now that says a lot about doctors, for one thing. And I'll I'll say where that's going here in a minute. But why the high death rate on the doctors' unit and not the midwives' unit? Five times higher death rate on the doctors' unit than the midwives' unit. Well, they thought was it because the Women on the midwives units were positioned on their sides and on their back. They tried that. They gave them the cheap tea instead of the high-cost tea. That didn't seem to help. Constipation. If you ever have any questions about, okay, why am I not over this medical condition? The fallback is always must be constipation. So they they tried giving enemas. That didn't work. They wondered if the priests were scaring the women to death by ringing their bells with the last rites when the women did die. So, okay, they blame psychiatry for that. So, you got constipation, you got psychiatry. How about atmospheric conditions? That wasn't a bad idea, actually. So, they opened up some windows. That didn't help either. So, they tried all these things, and the death, death rate stayed, uh, stayed high. Enter Ignaz Semmelweis, a name you all know, right? You don't, which is sad. Ignaz Semmelweis was born in Hungary, 5th of 10th children. I would have liked this guy because he asked too many questions in class and was disruptive in the classroom. Basically, he's a guy that probably had ADHD, similar to a Thomas Edison character, always thinking three steps ahead of everybody else, was always blurting out things inappropriately. So his father said, you know, his father was a shopkeeper, by the way. His father said, you like to argue, why don't you go into law? So he goes into law for a year, attends an anatomy class with one of his friends, and finds out he really likes medicine. So he changed over to medicine, graduates from medicine, becomes an obstetrician, and joins the OB unit at Vienna General Hospital. He's only 28 years old, and he joins as an assistant. He looks around, and he's noticing this high death rate, and he's noticing one thing. He notices the main difference between the doctor's ward and the midwife's unit is that on the doctor's ward, after the women died, they went and got an autopsy, by the medical students or by the residents themselves. And the midwives units, they weren't doing autopsies. Now, what's the deal about autopsies? Well, autopsies was were, were, became popular in the 1800s because people not only were just interested in how the body worked. Uh, in the 16th century, by the way, if you hung somebody of a crime, you got, uh, if you were hung as a uh, as, for doing a crime, you got your body laid open in front of everybody else as an autopsy on the public square because the general public was just interested in what's inside the body back in the 1600s. So in London, especially, they were very popular doing this. They did they did public autopsies just for everybody to see what the body looked like in the 1800s. They wanted to know why people died. So you had the residents, you had the medical students completing these autopsies. Then they'd go back and examine the women and deliver babies. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. You know what's coming. They didn't wash their hands. Joe Meredith, you're nurses. See a problem with that? I'm a doctor. I just think that's icky. But they didn't wash their hands or they didn't wash their instruments. They went from the autopsy and went right into examining the women, delivering a baby. They wiped their hands. I figure they gotta eat lunch sometime. But they gotta they didn't wash off their hands or clean the instruments. So the last straw was when one of Dr. Semmelweis's friends, he was doing an autopsy as a pathologist, and he pricked his finger. He died of the exact same illness all these women were dying of. Dr. Semmelweis says, aha, there's something must, must be happening where the cause of the labor fever, as they called it, was on the medical students or the interns' hands. There was something on their hands Taken it from the autopsy to the women, and that's what was killing them. So he ordered his medical staff to start cleaning their hands and instruments, not with just soap, but with a chlorine solution. He didn't know anything about germs. You know why he used the chlorinated solution? To mask the smell from the autopsies. Because when you examine a dead body, there's a smell on your hand. If you a notice, I don't like to eat with my hands, I eat with fork and knife. People give me a hard time about that, but I don't pick up things because I used to do autopsies and I know where my hands have been. It creeps me out. So he used a chlorinated solution just to mask the smell. Inadvertently, he was killing the germs too. He didn't know that. So he started this process. He, he's having the residents, the interns, they're washing, they're pouring water over their hands, chlorinated solution, they're drying their hands. And within three months, the within uh, within uh, three months, there it is, the picture. Within three months, the death rate fell from eighteen percent down to one percent. See, that's why you all know about Dr. Semmelweis. That's why he's so famous because it was this remarkable trajectory in the drop in the death rate on the Vienna General Ward. Here's a graph on the far left. It was up to 30% uh, four years before Dr. Semmelweis went there. And it went, Dr. Semmelweis joined the unit where they see the arrow right there. And then after he joined the unit, within a matter of months, six months later, he's implementing the hand washing of hands and instruments and negligible death rate, basically, just overnight. Continued for a few months, and then there was a backlash. The medical community ridiculed Dr. Semmelweis because they said, gentlemen, don't spread diseases. I love that. He was fired. He was fired. They were not going to continue washing their hands. They said, that's ridiculous. He was actually booed when he went to medical conventions talking about this bizarre idea of washing your hands between touching dead bodies and examining people. Um, Became increasingly outspoken. Fired from Vienna General Hospital, he's out on the sidewalk telling people, don't go in there, they're gonna kill you. Not a good employee-employer relationship going on there. (laughs) Became ostracized by colleagues for for spreading misinformation. Misinformation was a term they used in the 1800s. I couldn't believe it, I was looking at the biographies. They used the term misinformation. And then, his wife says, one of your friends out in the country Wants to hear all about the hand-washing technique you're using. He said, yes, I'd love to go see him. She takes him out in the country. Oh, they take a little turn. He goes to a psychiatric asylum. The first week he's there, he gets into a tussle with one of the attendants, cuts his right hand, dies within one to three weeks later of sepsis, which is the exact same illness all those women had died of. He died of infection of the blood. 47 years of age, the year was 1865. Think about that date, 1865. That's when the American civil war was ending. He had implemented hand washing of, and instrument washing 18 years previously. Think about the civil war. With the civil war, 1861 to 1865, in the civil war, you had a death rate going on there of one out of six, if you had an amputation. Now the civil war surgeons were called butchers. They had good technique. It's just that they didn't wash their hands. And if you look at the civil war pictures, they weren't washing anything. They were going from one body to another and they'd do a brief swipe of their hands and go into another body, swipe their hands. They weren't dying of poor technique from a surgical standpoint, they were dying of infection. And the closer the amputation was to your torso, the higher the rate of your your death. If you had a a shoulder amputation, your likelihood of dying was one out of four. If your wrist was amputated, it was about one out of 10. But it was due to infection itself. So what happened with the name of Dr. Semmelweis? Well, the good news is, over in Europe at least, Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister, they recognized him as saying, this is great, 20 years after he died, they recognized he was on it because they understood the germ theory at that time. Now, Dr. Semmelweis has his name on statues, coins, stamps, and even a university. So from a biblical perspective, it's kind of interesting because over 3,000 years prior to Dr. Semmelweis, in the book of Numbers, 1911, it said, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. Think there wasn't a reason for that? They must purify themselves with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and they'll be clean. Going on down, you're supposed to pour fresh water. You use hyssop. You sprinkle the tent. What's, the, what's all this with sprinkling and hyssop and everything? Old Testament disinfection involved pouring running water. When he talked about sprinkling, pouring running water has a disinfectant effect. Hyssop, we see hyssop all the time. Hyssop contains thymol. Thymol is a powerful essential oil that acts as a disinfectant. They didn't know that at that time. You rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Third and seventh day, and you're allowed time to dry. That'd be in seven days. Those are all disinfecting techniques. So I've talked about the engineering, the theological aspects of truth. Now I'm going to close with uh, theological aspects. I'm going to uh, describe a powerful testimony I heard from a doctor at a doctor's lounge. Some other younger doctors were coming in, and he. Boldly professed that his worship of God changed his life. He had a renewed inner peace and perspective with people in the world around him. He enthusiastically was inviting people to uh, join him at his place of worship. But he wasn't alluding to Christianity. We don't have a market on this, my faith changed my life thing. Your, Your life can be changed from a lot of other things, so we have to... Think about how are we examining our theological beliefs. Again, you can do so with cynicism, where you're just not going to believe no matter what anybody tells you about anything, or skepticism with doubt, discernment where you want more information, or blind faith. So, with that being said, who was Jesus? Some say that he was a, he's a prophet, a more a good teacher, a moral leader. Who did Jesus say he was? Jesus answered in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and you have seen Him. Anyone who has seen Him has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He was saying, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, look at what I've done with my miracles. We're really good as Christians talking about the shuns, T-I-O-N, shuns. We talk about propitiation, uh, sanctification, justification. A shun that we need to help people who aren't Christians understand is a whole shun of in incarnation. Incarnation is God coming to earth as a man. When you start talking to somebody about Christianity, that's where you start. Jesus was God. If, if Jesus was not God, it all ends. C.S. Lewis said, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The cynical response concerning Jesus that I'll hear from a lot of people will, will be They're referring to the verse in Matthew 27, 46, where it describes the ninth hour, that being 3 p.m. during his crucifixion. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken is a very strong expression for personal abandonment. Now, it was previously intensely felt by David in Psalm 22, which is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel, and when you look at Psalm 22, David said, my God, by God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? That was a 1,000 years before the crucifixion. Psalm 22 is a very interesting psalm because the first, 21st, uh, the first uh, 21 verses describe lamenting, including including Psalm 22:16, 16, where they say they have pierced my heart or they have pierced my hands and my feet. Was David crucified? Crucifixion didn't exist for 300 years. The Assyrians and Babylonians invented Christian um, crucifixion and gave it to the Romans thereafter, but they didn't do that until 300 years after he said this. What's he describing? Psalm 22:18, 18, and for my clothing they cast lots. Did that happen to David? No, but David wrote it. What's he writing this for? He wrote it as a precursor to saying this is what's going to happen during the crucifixion. But Psalm 22, like the Bible does, it ends on a good note. There's praise and thanksgiving, the last 10, or 10 verses for in, from an individual and congregational standpoint. So why was Jesus forsaken? Jesus was forsaken because in Isaiah 53.10 it said, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Father will prosper in his hand, his referring to Jesus's. Jesus had to be forsaken because he had to suffer. He had to be crushed. He had to be separated from from God. And as Max very astutely pointed out yesterday at the men's breakfast, God knew he was going to get him back in three days. It's tough to forsake your son, unless you know he's going to come back in three days. And that's what was happening with Jesus. Jesus had to take on all of our sins very briefly and be forsaken from, from God during that time. But he had to be briefly forsaken during that time because he was taken on the burden of sin of mankind. So we have Christmas coming up soon. Is the Christmas story, which is basically all about the incarnation, God coming to earth as a man. Is it true? First Peter uh, 3.15, Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We need to help help people understand why we believe what we believe. A Hindu friend asked me this one time, and I had to come up with some thoughts. Why do I believe what I believe? And I'm going to propose four different points. Predictive prophecy, the witnesses, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Let's talk about predictive prophecy, which I think is profound in the Bible. With predictive prophecy, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is in they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying in John 5 21, look at the scriptures. You'll see me. And you certainly do when you read the scriptures. The Old Testament has a beautiful thread of continuity to the New Testament. And the traditional number of Messianic Old Testament prophecies is 365, from what I've seen. Sometimes 324 is seen. One uh, scholar said there's over 500 Messianic prophecies, if you really look hard. But let's just call it over 300. Over 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, describing Jesus in detail, who He's going to be in the New Testament, concerning His birth, life, ministry, miracles, crucifixion, and resurrection. To me, that's very powerful. Over 300 prophecies, a specific person is coming and describe him as well as he did. You could um, look at the odds of random chance for over 300 messianic prophecies coming true. I looked up the odds of winning the Hoosier lotto a couple weeks ago, $5.4 million lotto. It's a one in 10, $10 million chance of winning the Hoosier lotto. If you only have eight prophecies come true about somebody, it's one in 100 trillion Chance it would come, it could come true. How about forty-eight prophecies coming true? It's one in ten to one hundred fifty-seven zeros. So, not highly likely it's going to be by random chance. Secondly, let's talk about the witnesses looking at the truth of the incarnation. The witnesses, including the uh, gospel writers, they had lack of personal motivation, fame, fame fortune. Um, they had no reason for writing the Gospels as they did from a prestigious standpoint. Not a really good career move for them uh, concerning what happened to them. So there's lack of personal motivation for the Gospel writers. Secondly, there was a consistent fluidity of the reports. I'm glad that there appear to be contradictions in various parts of the Gospel writers, renditions of different events, because if you interview people who personally witnessed 9-11, they're going to have different perspectives on what they were doing and what they saw. That's what the gospel writers said. Of course they have a different perspectives. And then you have somebody like Luke who already assumes you've already read Mark, and you already know about that, so he's, he's elaborating on it, and he's clarifying it. There's geographical separation of the disciples after the resurrection. If you have gang members who, are testi- or who you're interviewing uh, following a crime, the first thing you do is separate them in different rooms and see if their stories jive. The stories jived with the disciples no matter how far away they were separated. It was consistent. Emotionally charged memories are easily recalled. People will sometimes argue, well, Jay, they wrote these stories down years later. Do you remember what you're doing on 9-11? Remember what you're doing on your wedding day? If it's an emotionally charged memory, you're going to remember it very clearly. I find it very interesting. In the Gospels, there's no documentation of Jerusalem, Burning? Jesus said uh, that uh, no one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be torn down in Matthew 24 1 to 3. He predicted Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and it was in 70 AD. None of that was mentioned in the New Testament. None of it. Showed that the Gospels had to be written before 70 AD. So there was consistency in when it was written as well. How about the witnesses of the resurrection? If you're going to write a fictionalized account of something and make something up, you're not going to say women were the ones that were witnesses in the first century. Women didn't have any credibility. They weren't even allowed to stand witness in court in the first century, but they were the first at the resurrection. Over 500 people witnessed Jesus upon his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15.6 when uh, Paul reported that most of them are still living. There's historical collaboration with Jewish and Roman historians who admitted that, yeah, Jesus was somebody who did live, he was crucified. Archaeology's uh, Archaeological evidence does support some of the things that happened at that time. Let's talk about the crucifixion. The crucifixion validates the incarnation because it occurred on the one day out of 365 days that happened to be the Judean Passover. And it occurred consistent with the tamid daily sacrifice, also known as the perpetual sacrifice, where you have a lamb sacrificed at 9 a.m. and another lamb sacrificed at 3 p.m. Jesus was hung on the cross me a manual on that, could you, Jason? It stuck on me. Romans were really good at building bridges and uh, building roads, but they were also really good at, there we go, executing people. So they were. he was executed by a Roman professional. Spear in the water. When the Roman soldiers put the spear into Jesus's side, if you're just writing that and making up the story, you'd say blood came out. But when somebody hangs for a long period of time, their blood fractionalizes into plasma and red blood cells. And when the blood fractionalizes, it'll look like the plasma is water coming out. So yeah, they did see what looked like water, which was his plasma coming out at that time. The environmental and the local changes that occurred after the crucifixion. We talk about all those things that happened after the resurrection. I think it often gets understated. What happened the day of the crucifixion at, three, at between noon and 3 p.m.? What was going on in the environment from that day? Because in Matthew 27, 45, and it's collaborated in Mark and Luke, it said, from noon until 3 in the afternoon during the crucifixion, darkness came over the land. Now, for most of my life, I figured that was a solar eclipse. Still, still, until I started doing what... Max and Doug always encourage me to do, read the Old Testament more closely. The Judean Passover occurred during a full moon. You can't have a solar eclipse when the moon is on the opposite side of the earth. That's a full moon. A solar eclipse can only occur when the moon is between the sun and the earth. So I looked a little bit closer and thought, well, NASA follows all this stuff, and by golly, they do. NASA follows solar eclipses really, really well because it's very predictable when a solar eclipse is going to occur. They go back in thousands of years on when solar eclipses occurred. They saw November uh, 29 AD and March, middle of March 33 AD. Never do you see a solar eclipse occurring in the middle of April. So a solar eclipse couldn't have caused that darkness to come over the land. Was it a really cloudy day? I don't know. It sounded like it was pretty dark. Matthew 27, 50, Matthew 27, 50, uh, verse 50 to 54 says that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, this is at 3 p.m., and at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Max, we never did figure out if somebody sewed that up. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, and they came out of the tomb. After Jesus' of resurrection, they waited for Jesus to come out and went to the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those around him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Pretty big day. Finally, the resurrection. We can validate the resurrection number one, by Jesus calling it. He said he was going to rise after three days in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Roman guard was posted at the tomb. Four soldiers in rotating shifts. Body was never found. Wouldn't you love to see the History Channel try to claim they found the body of Jesus? It's not happening. History Channel is not going to have a documentary on their finding the body of Jesus. They would have done it if they had found That would have been a big documentary. But the body was never found. The Romans, the Jewish leaders never found the body of Jesus. That would have destroyed the whole Christian movement right there. Jesus was seen at least 11 times over 40 days by over 500 witnesses, based on Paul's account of people who were still alive in 1 Corinthians 15.6. Dr. Simon Greenleaf was an attorney who helped found, he was a founder of the Harvard School of Law, and he was dead set on disproving the resurrection. So he looks at all the legal evidence for the resurrection and discovers that the resurrection is actually one of the best supported events in history, according to the laws of legal evidence. So his uh, outcome was not what he expected. Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. When Jesus walked the earth for 40 days after he was resurrected, it wasn't like a Bigfoot sighting where... You know, it was kind of getting dark, and I think I saw Jesus over there on the hill. No, we're talking about he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive in Acts 1, 2, and 3. He was still doing miracles. He was still interacting with people after he was resurrected. So it was a face-to-face interaction with people. And finally, disciples who were firsthand witnesses of their resurrection abruptly went from hiding to becoming fearless witnesses. If you heard about something and heard about something from somebody else, okay, maybe then you're more likely to believe. But if you're a first-hand witnesses and you really know witness and you really know the story, you're less prone to really believe something did happen unless it really did. So we've talked about the validation of the truth of incarnation. Incarnation, God coming to earth as man. So what? Was it really necessary? Okay. Incarnation flips the man-God relationship. and most, most religions, you have man working his way toward God. Man sets all these rules. You've got to do this, 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 this. Then God will be really pleased. So you've got to do all these things to please God. With Christianity, it flips it upside down. God came to man in the form of Jesus. First Timothy 2, 5, and 6, written by Paul to his mentor, Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, and one, and the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So I'm going to give you seven points, and this is basically how I described Christianity to my Hindu friend, this God-man relationship. Number one, holiness. People generally understand the idea of holiness, perfect righteousness. Heaven is holy heaven is holy. Heaven is a place of perfection. What we call stores, like heavenly ham. They're heavenly. Heavenly is a perfect place. There's no spitting, cussing, and fighting in heaven. It's a perfect place. So it's similar to perfectly sealed rockets on the space shuttle or a sterile operating room. It's it's perfect cleanliness. It's perfect. Thirdly, God provided the law to us to provide instructions for healthy living. Look at the numbers. He told us how to disinfect. And also to define what is righteous and holy. Fourth, we have to remember that man's inability to retain that, to attain that perfect righteousness leads to the inability to enter heaven. God included the method of blood, life shedding sacrifice. Blood has oxygen in it, oxygen gives us life, and that's in the law by grace, giving us something we didn't deserve, God provided Jesus as our living sacrifice, as a substitute for us inadequately attaining perfect righteousness. And finally, our works are a result of, not a cause of, that relationship. We're not working our way toward God. God came to us, and because of that, we have the works that we do. So, let me wrap up here by talking about depositions. I used to be an expert witness uh, in the courtroom. i I'd interview people for psychiatric evaluations who had done some uh, had some misbehavior, got arrested, and I'd interview them for their competency. And then I'd go in front of the prosecuting attorney, the, uh, the um, defense attorney, and they'd ask questions back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. A big deposition would come out of that. Somebody would be furiously typing right there or they'd listen to the recording. Every single line, every single word that you say during that interview with the prosecuting attorney and defense attorney was recorded. After about two or three days, the transcript comes back, and you're asked, do you want to redact anything? Redact just means crossing it out. No, I do not want to say that. I didn't want to say that. So you cross out a few things. Sometimes you end up crossing out a lot of stuff. And it kind of reminds me sometimes of uh, the great theologian Yogi Berra. Um, he, had a, he had a few great sayings. One of the sayings, uh, baseball is 90% mental, the other half is physical. Um, you should go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. (laughs) But he he was attributed to a lot of sayings he didn't say. So he had a great saying saying, I never said half the things I said. That's how you feel sometimes when you look at a transcript. You think, did I really say all that stuff? So you cross it out, cross it out, cross it out. How does redaction occur? Well, what happens, the witness, like me, Ask the judge to, can you remove this, remove this, remove this, line 23, line 24? And the judge says yes. The judge never says no. And then the statements are deleted. That's all there is to it. We need to accept the gift of redaction. Hebrews 12, 12.10 says, Our sins are washed away and were made clean because Christ gave His own body as a gift of God. He did this once and for all time. Basically, He's taken our transcript. That has our sins of commission, our deeds, thoughts, behaviors, everything, and our sins of omission, stuff we should have done but we didn't at the time. There's a lot of stuff on there. And simply with Jesus' sacrifice, immediately upon our death, it's gone. We don't even have to ask. Jesus already knows what we need to redact. It's gone. By the time you get to, by the time you're dead, it's all gone. Clear. Total redaction. So as I asked the worship team to come on up here, the question is, is mostly good, good enough? I never murdered anybody. Is that good enough? I'm better than that guy down the pew from me. Is that good enough? With a Challenger, there was a leaky leaky seal. The rest of the rocket was probably great. With Vienna General Hospital, a little bit of contamination. But five out of six women came away alive. With my life, there's the occasional sin. Not good enough. It's not perfect. There's consequences of lack of perfection. There's the Challenger explosion. There's the high de- death rate in Vienna General. And if I don't accept Jesus, I get the full transcript in front of God at the time of my death. I asked earlier. I mentioned earlier that Pilate got his answer. To his question, what is truth in John 18, 38, three years after the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate gets called back to Rome because he's getting a little bit too aggressive with the crucifixions. And he's sentenced to, based on who you read, either execute himself in front of Emperor Caligula. Tiberius had died by that time, Caligula had sentenced him, or he was sent into exile where he committed suicide. But the bottom line is, upon his death, he immediately got this answer to this question. He found out what truth was. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for giving us the redaction of our extensive life transcript by accepting Your Son, Jesus, as our living sacrifice. We pray that You allow us to continue to seek Your guidance and seek truth.